Well, I feel like I don't need to preach much after that, but I'll try anyways. First of all, welcome to summer, officially. I know that we celebrated that milestone in our family this week as school finished up for our elementary and middle school kids, and the weather turned to summer very quickly. And youth ministry summer programming began this week, and the church got real quiet as our wonderful preschoolers that usually grace our hallways are no longer here. It got quiet pretty fast in this building. It's officially summer, and so we begin a new teaching series. We had a wonderful time working through the Lord's Prayer, and it's time for us to make a change to a new book of the Bible and a new study. We've just moved to phase five here in Illinois. Restrictions have continued to to loosen, which has been wonderful. The pandemic is maybe less of a central part of our daily life, which is wonderful. We're reconnecting with loved ones and even just getting to know new neighbors, new coworkers. We're kind of figuring out how to do life again. And I know that at times I can feel pretty disoriented in that. I hope I'm not the only one who feels that way. Add to this, some of you who are really actively rebuilding from seasons that have been painful or difficult. You've been surrounded by illness or isolation or loss of loved ones or loss of dreams, loss of jobs, loss of relationships. The reality is we are all sort of rebuilding our lives and our relationships and our commitments in this season, and the church is no exception to this. The statistics on the church right now and church life are not particularly encouraging. In the 14 months of the COVID pandemic that we've had, it's estimated that north of 7,000 churches have closed in America with only about 3,500 opening. There were some encouraging church attendance trends at this time last year as people adjusted to this online church, and many leaders saw an opportunity to invest in that so they could reach out to people who might never consider walking into a church building, but who might log in for a service out of curiosity. But those, even those online attendance numbers have fallen off a cliff by late last summer. As churches have be, been reopening, it's really hard to track attendance and uh, engagement, but it is estimated that about 30% of people who were regular churchgoers in February of 2020 have dropped out of church attendance completely, whether online or in person. 86% of American churches are in decline right now. 2020 marked the lowest number of church members in America in eight decades, and there's little evidence that just because churches are opening up again that those numbers are going to rebound. A recent Gallup poll suggests that 57% of respondents claim that their personal faith in Jesus has actually grown in the last 14 months. Praise God, right? But a staggering 48% of those same respondents say that they are less interested in going to church or a Christian community than they were before March of 2020. All this to say, people are spiritually attuned and interested, but they're doing it on their own, apart from the church, And apart from other people, and many who were previously affiliated with a church community have absolutely no interest in re-engaging. Add to that the approval rating of organized religion in general and the evangelical church in particular is at an all-time low. That is not a Gallup poll. That's just me looking at the news and looking at social media feeds. It's not hard to see this. And that means that we have an entire emerging generation of young people for whom the church 
And the Christian faith is not at the center of public or private life, but rather it's on the margins, and it's seen as something that is irrelevant. Now, I don't say these things to depress you or alarm you this morning, because we've actually been super encouraged at the ways in which you have re-engaged in church life here. We're encouraged by our attendance and engagement here at Hinsdale Covenant Church. But I'll be honest with you and say I have concerns when I look at those kinds of statistics. How can you not? I'm, concern, I'm not concerned about whether God is going to take care of the church. He will. But I'm more concerned about what, that's, what is that going to look like for me? What's that going to look like for us? I'm concerned for those in our community who have just gotten out of the habit of going to church or gotten out of the habit of spiritual practices in their own lives. I'm concerned about programs that are too reactive or not reactive enough. It does not take a professional forecaster to see that without a significant movement of the Holy Spirit, our churches will continue to suffer and our witness will be diminished. We can't be content with that. We can't. The church must, in many ways, rebuild its strategy and its plan to bear witness to Jesus Christ in a world that is changing so rapidly around us. It's so disorienting. The church needs to have a good strategy. And that's really what this series is all about. We're going to be studying the book of Nehemiah throughout the summer, a book that is all about rebuilding. And as we move through the book of Nehemiah this summer, we will find that the people of God have had seasons of significant rebuilding before. And they have wisdom for us. They're written down as wisdom for us. So it's our prayer that throughout this journey through Nehemiah that you're going to hear God's call to intentionally rebuild from what has been torn down in this season. That you would see clearly the opportunities before us in this season of hope. I think God wants to use Nehemiah and his book to guide us and lead us forward in a process of rebuilding as a witness to God's presence and goodness, both in our church and in our community and in our very hearts. There's going to be tons of strategy as we go throughout this summer. There's a lot of leadership lessons and strategy lessons from Nehemiah. But we're going to begin where Nehemiah begins in chapter 1. And you'll see that strategy is going to come later. We're going to do something different this morning. So our scripture this morning, if you wouldn't mind standing if you're able, I'm going to read chapter 1 in its entirety. <clears throat> the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah in the month of Shislev, in the 20th year, while I was in Susa, the capital. One of my brothers, Hanani, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them about the Jews that survived, those who had escaped the captivity, and about the holy city of Jerusalem. And they replied, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, its gates have been destroyed by fire. When I heard these words, I sat down and I wept and I mourned for days, fasting and praying before the God of heaven. I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel, confessing the sins of the people of Israel 
which we have sinned against you. Both I and my family have sinned. We have offended you deeply, failing to keep the commandments, the statutes, and the ordinances that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember, O Lord, the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Quote, if you are, faith, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are under the farthest skies, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place at which I have chosen to establish my name, end quote. They are your servants and your people, O God, who you redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. At this time, I was cupbearer for the king. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You can be seated. So a little bit of context here, if you're a little wondering what's going on. Our main character is Nehemiah. He is a Jew. He is serving the Persian king Artaxerxes in the capital city of Susa of Persia. He lives a little more than a century after the city of Jerusalem was destroyed and the Jewish people were carried off in the Babylonian exile in 586 BC. Now the Persians eventually overthrew the Babylonians. So by the time of the account of this book, there have already been two movements of Jews, of Jewish people, back to Jerusalem on the part of of God's gracious work, which is recorded in the book of Ezra. The, The Babylonians, they had left the city of Jerusalem completely desolate, but the Persians... They allowed the Jewish people to go back home. So the book of Nehemiah begins with reports from the people who had already returned to Jerusalem, but that homecoming isn't going so well. The text tells us that Nehemiah gets a report from Hanani, one of those who was in Jerusalem. And he says, The survivors there in the province who escaped captivity are in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates have been destroyed by fire. And the text tells us, how does Nehemiah respond? He weeps and mourns for days, fasting and praying. I was thinking about this. I was thinking about when uh, I was in college, my parents moved to a house on a lake in North St. Paul. It was a beautiful point on this beautiful lake with huge trees, a lovely yard. And one summer, a, a storm moved in off the lake. It was straight line winds. It clipped the top of those trees that were down by the shore And two of those huge 140-foot trees came down, missing the house by mere inches in places. And I remember calling my parents. They were in Europe at the time for my dad's work, and I explained what had happened. And I remember hearing something catch in my dad's throat. My dad loves trees. Um, I had remembered several years earlier when a tornado had come close to our house through one of our local parks. I remember him walking through the park with downed trees and just tears in his eyes and I have this visual of him sort of strolling through the rubble despondent and emotional something about the devastation and the end of those trees lives just sort of catch up, caught him emotionally and on the phone when I was telling him this that these beautiful trees had come down I remember him saying something like those trees were so special that is like one of the main reasons that I bought this house 
was because of these trees. That's why I love that house. And like Nehemiah, my dad wept. Now, Nehemiah knew that Jerusalem had been destroyed a century earlier. This was not news to him. He knew that it was in rough shape. So why does this news hit him so hard? Why is this such difficult news for him to absorb? Well, for Nehemiah, you have to understand that this was so much more than just a wall and a city. In in ancient days, a city without a functioning wall was really a disgrace. It wasn't really a city at all. It was easily invaded and overrun. It provided no security for the people. Busted walls spoke poorly about the people, their leaders, their governance, their gods, their armies. So when your walls are in ruins in the ancient world, you as a people were also in ruins. And for someone like Nehemiah, to hear that Jerusalem was in shambles was like a knife to the heart because Jerusalem wasn't supposed to be like other cities. Jerusalem was God's city. Jerusalem in in the Hebrew is Yerushalayim, which means this is a place of completeness. Isn't that an amazing name? In other words, this is the city of Shalom, of completeness. This is the city where God is doing his most complete work. It was the place where God's people gathered, where they gathered for worship, where they had heard scripture read where they learned, as Sam Perry puts it, to be a city within the city for the prosperity of the city. So Nehemiah is gutted when he hears that it's in shambles because that is such a sad thing to hear. That's not how Jerusalem should be. It's like my dad saying, that's why I love that place. And now it's in ruins. So as we look to the spiritual climate of our own nation today and our world today, our church today, we should be feeling some of the same as I read those statistics earlier. Certainly the church of Jesus Christ is not desolate. It's not barren. God is at work. But we're kind of walking around the rubble of this last year and looking at our world and going, it's not supposed to be this way. It's not supposed to be this way. This is God's world. This is God's church. People shouldn't be casually wandering around finding their own spiritual purpose wherever they see fit. They should be gathering, and they should be growing, and they should be leaning in to hear God's word, and they should be worshiping the God of heaven, and and they should be equipped for mission like a city within a city for the prospering of the city. And this is where Nehemiah is so instructive for us. Just as he wants to see Jerusalem rebuilt in a way that restores it to its function for the people and for the the welfare of the world, the mission of our church is the same because we have the same goal. Nehemiah tells us that we should be rebuilding towards something. And if we're following Nehemiah, we should be rebuilding towards a church where people joyfully gather for worship and God's word and fellowship and we are equipped for mission where God has placed us. This is what the church is intended to be. Friends, I don't know what the world is going to look like even tomorrow with the way things are changing. I don't know if you feel that way too. I, I don't know exactly how our church is going to adapt to, to reach the world that God has given us with the love and grace and goodness of Jesus Christ. But I do know this. We need to cherish our gathering and use this space to be equipped for mission. 
We should be rebuilding towards a, a fervent worship, a, a deeply rooted scripture reading and practice, a vital fellowship. And we have to rebuild towards a church that is way better at equipping for mission. Hinsdale Covenant Church cannot be a church where we come to meet our own needs and be filled up for our own benefit. We have to get serious about equipping each and every person in this church for the unique mission that God has given us in our families, and in our neighborhoods, and in our workplaces, and in our worlds. So when we see how far we have to go, when we see how much has been lost, when we're walking around in the rubble of that, it's imperative that we respond and we turn to Nehemiah as a guide and example for how we respond. Now, Nehemiah models three responses for us as he surveys this news that he hears. And I want you to think about these responses as you ponder your response to the rebuilding that needs to be done in your life, in our communities, in our church. The first thing Nehemiah does is he stops. Did you notice that? The text tells us the first thing Nehemiah did was he sat down. When we see things in our personal lives, our spiritual lives, our corporate church life being broken down, hurting, in disrepair, I know that I so often want to jump to solutions right away. Is there a book I can read? Is there a solution I can buy? Is there a pill I can take? Is there a resource that I can use up? But Nehemiah, though he was a highly resourceful guy, which we're going to see in the weeks to come, he doesn't run to shortcuts and quick fixes. First, he sits. In fact, there are several scholars who make the case that if we're reading between Nehemiah chapter 1 and chapter 2, that he doesn't act on the report of these broken walls for like four months. We hear, we're going to hear about that response next week, but he sat in this place, in this sadness, for maybe up to four months before taking any sort of significant action. It's good for us to not run to solutions because ultimately what that communicates is, you know what, God, you sit back. I've got this. I can take care of this one. But when we sit back, what are we doing? We're admitting we need help. We're committing to a slower way of being. We're striving for a clearer mind, for a clearer heart, for clearer desires. So first he stops, then what does he do? Second, Nehemiah weeps. He weeps. As he sits with this sobering news, he gets emotional. He weeps. Now, I'm not forcing you to cry this morning. I wouldn't do that because I think tears are a mysterious and beautiful thing, and they come when they come for some of us more than others. I'm not a crier. I wish I was at times. But what I'm asking you to do is, is as you sit in this reality, let yourself feel the full range of emotions. As you look at the landscape of your life, our world, the church, are you sad? then let yourself be sad. Are you tired? Take a nap. Are you grieving? Grieve. Are you joyful? Be joyful. Whatever it is, get your heart involved. Nehemiah's emotions were not performative. His tears actually indicate that he's a, he's a godly man who cares deeply for the reputation and the well-being of the people of God because both are a reflection of God's own reputation. Nehemiah is not simply going through the motions here. 
This is not some distant professionalism, but it's a passionate, deep identification with the people of God and the city of God and what God wants to do in the world. If you don't regularly feel a deep burden for God's people, for the church, for the broken world that we live in, for the mission of God that needs to go out into this hurting world, then you need to do some work on your emotional health, which is a hard but wonderful journey. And it can always start by you just asking God, would you break my heart? Would you break my heart for the things that break your heart? And I have found that when I pray that prayer, God is faithful to answer that prayer. Third thing he does, Nehemiah prays. After stopping and weeping, he turns to prayer. Is that one of your first responses? Is that how your prayer life is? Or is your prayer life a a few words before a meal and a kind of shoot the moon prayer when you're late and stuck in traffic? I love the principle here of stopping, feeling, and praying. I strive to do this. Not to say to people, well, I'll pray for you later, or I'll add this to my prayer list. um, but, But instead, to stop what I'm doing to sit in it, to feel it, and to pray for it, to pray as fervently as Nehemiah does. If we want to be faithful rebuilders, we are doomed if prayer isn't central for us. So Nehemiah prays, and what a prayer it is, isn't it? I think it's so great that we just spent nine weeks talking about the Lord's Prayer, and as soon as we change sermon series, what do we have? Maybe the second best prayer in all of Scripture one that is every bit as much a model for us as Jesus' prayer in the Sermon on the Mount. It's a form prayer, really, for us. And it's so wise and thoughtful, and I think it's worth following in our own prayer lives. I'm going to encourage you at some point to go back and and read it on your own to really dig into this prayer. But his prayer, much like the Lord's Prayer, is like a funnel that starts with the character of God, and then it condenses down to human petition. Nehemiah starts with a recognition of who God is, and then he weaves in confession, and he recalls the good works of God, and, and he quotes God on his own promises. He appeals on behalf of a people. He shows submission to God and dependence on God. He petitions God for success as he prepares to speak with the king. He prays with this bold and earnest confidence, knowing that God is going to hear this prayer because his prayer is founded on the promises of God. I think this prayer demonstrates to me that Nehemiah is someone who knew God on a daily daily basis. It contains adoration and reflection on the character of God. And when we are in great distress, it's worth asking, is this typically how we approach God? I'm convinced, especially when we're walking around the rubble in our lives, we ought to remember that God is the God of the heavens and the earth. He's in control. He is great and awesome. This is the way we move forward in hope in the face of discouragement. It's also worth noting that this prayer contains confession. It's one of the best uh, confession prayers that we have in all the scripture. And it's not just a personal confession, though. Nehemiah does bring forward he and his family. It's a communal confession on behalf of an entire people and himself. Nehemiah is basically owning why the people of God were carried off to exile in the first place. They didn't obey God. They wouldn't listen to him. They were stubborn. They were obstinate. It was Israel's collective sin, and Nehemiah repents of that sin. 
Now that's a pretty foreign idea in our 21st century Western culture where we tend to speak for ourselves and nobody else. It's way too easy to look at the problems of this world or the problems of the church and simply point fingers at others. It's not, I'm not the problem, they're the problem. They're the ones that are making this bad. We're in a bad spot because of them. But scripture tells us that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So we all individually and collectively have a sin that undermines our collective health, the health of our church, the health of our witness in the world. I think what makes Nehemiah's prayer so striking for me is its humility and its heart. He empties himself, and that's a model for us. Friends, we need to rise up and pray like Nehemiah does in chapter 1. I'll challenge you in your devotions this week to go back to that prayer, to underline, to, to rewrite that prayer in your own words. As Cyril Barber writes in his book about Nehemiah, the self-sufficient do not pray, they merely talk to themselves. The self-satisfied will not pray, they have no knowledge of their need. The self-righteous cannot pray, they have no basis on which to approach God. So, if you are up for rebuilding in this seminal moment in history, let me encourage you to start with me in the practice of stopping and weeping or feeling and praying. Because where we are right now as a nation, as a people, as a church, we can't be content with that. We need to restore the fullness of worship, reverence around God's word, the sanctity of gathering with our brothers and sisters in Christ, and we desperately need to rebuild in such a way that empowers us and equips us for mission. Much more on that as the summer goes along. If we do not emerge, re-emerge from this time as more prayerful and more missional, then I think we've missed our opportunity completely. So as we go throughout this summer, Nehemiah is going to offer us salient wisdom on how we rebuild. But for today, we start where he started. We stop, we feel, we weep, and we pray. So would you pray with me? Lord, as we survey our own lives, our world, our church, our community, we take just a moment to not try and solve things or move on, but to just stop. Lord, we take time to feel what we're supposed to feel. Would you connect our minds and our hearts in such a way that we're in touch with the emotions that you have given to us as we survey our lives? Lord, we pray to you, O oh God, 
of heaven and earth, great and awesome, the God of promises, the one who says, even though I scatter you, if you'll return to me, I will gather you again. And I will place you where I intend for my glory. Lord, as we hear these kinds of statistics, as we feel them in our lives and communities, we recognize that we are in a world that needs you and is so spiritually lost, that seeks fulfillment in so many ways. We mourn over the ways in which our witness has been dulled or silenced or done damage by our own sin. We bring our own sins and the sins of the church before you, Lord. You know them all. We confess. We repent. And we ask, Lord, that you would do a restoring work. And would you give us the grace, Lord? Would you give us the gift of your grace so that we might be rebuilders, partners with you in the rebuilding and redeeming and renewing work that you want to do in your world and in your church? Lord, we ask for fresh movements of the Spirit. We need fresh movements of your Spirit, Lord. So as we go throughout the summer, may we turn to your word and see the opportunities that you give to us, where you invite us in to rebuild, to renew to do your good work in this world. That is our heart's desire. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Amen. Would you stand for our closing hymn this morning? Christ, be my leader.